Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Simon in raining and thundering Florida. Uh, A wet day. We haven't had much, but I can see what's happening. A storm off the coast. I think it's already now the first tropical storm, and these are given names. I think it's Arthur. Uh, they start with A, and hopefully they don't get the Z. Um, uh, and uh, I want to talk today about uh, the myth of two concepts that are central to the uh, psychiatric model of mental illness. <clears throat> For those of you who have been following my show or not, you can go back into my archives Uh, It's one of my preoccupations to see if I can help people understand that there's no such thing as actual mental illness and that uh, the the, uh, effect of being labeled or diagnosed with a mental illness, it can be very destructive. And the destruction uh, can get no worse than to be told uh, and accept the idea that you suffer from the most serious of mental illnesses or among the most serious, schizophrenia. Now, schizophrenia is an invented concept. It is not discovered. Um, We are now suffering and worrying about Uh, COVID-19. This is a, a germ, a bug that can be seen under a microscope. There is nothing that can be seen under a microscope or an x-ray or a blood test that confirms that somebody has something that could be called schizophrenia. The problem with with these terms, as I say over and over again, is that they're labels, they're moral labels for behaviors that are confusing, uh, unwanted, Uh, sometimes by the people who are behaving in such a way uh, that I'll describe in a a moment, or uh, by family members or by society. And it's not that there is no problem. Certain behaviors can be very destructive. Uh, Somebody who kills another human being, somebody who um, behaves in a way that's destructive to themselves, Uh, creates difficulties for the individual, for society. But the problem with this, with the mental illness term, is that if you're going to judge behavior itself, something somebody does, the judgment is moral in nature, or ethical in nature. They're doing something wrong. And if it's harmful, it makes it wrong. If it's destructive to the family, to themselves, to society, it's wrong. But it's not a disease. And if the fact that could be shown that an individual does have a tumor or some kind of medical imbalance uh, or brain chemical problem, and this can be shown to be the cause of the behavior, then there is an illness. And the behavior can be understood then as a symptom as a symptom of that particular uh, illness. And it has, uh, therefore, it qualifies to be an actual symptom 
but not of a mental illness, but of a medical illness, a real bona fide illness, like a brain tumor, or like uh, a serious virus, or like anything that can be shown to have its source in some physical or physiological abnormality. And schizophrenia doesn't show that. What schizophrenia is are several kinds of behaviors, and the two big categories are what are called hallucinations and delusions. A hallucination is some kind of of experience, or a claim to an experience, seeing something, hearing something, smelling something, feeling something that doesn't actually exist. Uh, Nobody else can share the particular experience with you. And it is that that gets leads to, to some kind of a problem uh, that very often can be destructive or hurtful or scary to an individual, and they seek professional help. And nothing can be found, so it's not diagnosed as a problem of physiology and therefore real medicine. It works its way into the psychiatric nomenclature. By far the most... Um, Common hallucinations are so-called hearing of voices. Uh, And the voices can be male or female. They can be recognizable. Almost always they speak to the individual in their own language um, and can either say nice things to an individual or harmful things. You're disgusting, you're ugly, you should throw yourself off a bridge. Um, and they can categorize these voices in a variety of ways. I point out all the time that human beings are constantly having dialogues in their head and having arguments in their head and having discussions and that they experience the voice of the other and the content of what is said, but they don't actually hear it. And I don't know what the mechanism is that allows one person to hear it and another person not to hear it. But when somebody claims that, for example, God is uh, uh, talking to them or the devil is talking to them, uh, I see it as a deeply meaningful experience. But in our society, in our time in history, God may be believed in, but if he talks to you, you're crazy, and you can be diagnosed very quickly and easily with schizophrenia. Now, there are interesting organizations that have sprung up in recent years all over the world, all over Western society anyway, uh, and you can Google voice hearers and find out that there are many people, we don't know how many people, actually have discussions with voices that they actually hear. Sometimes they speak out loud to them. Sometimes it's mental, uh, uh, an internal psychological process in which they speak back. Uh, Sometimes the voices are threatening and sometimes the voices are pleasant. Um, And we discover that many people control the voices. I've spoken often about a woman I work with for 10 years And the first time uh, she told me about the voices that she heard, uh, it was some authoritative figure that either told her 
She was the worst person that's ever lived and has caused all of the world's miseries. Something very similar to what her mother had told her throughout her childhood. Uh, other times, that voice told her that she was a beautiful person, and since she wrote poetry, she was going to be known as an, an immortal poetess. And the first time I said to her, the voices are not real, she looked at me and she said, the voices say, you're not real, and left the room. So I never said that to her again. Um, the first, I used to go away on vacation in August. Uh, <clears throat> this I saw her in, in the Flushing Hospital Mental Health Clinic where I worked for 25 years. And um, when I went away on vacation, we had already figured out that if the voices were nasty and they said bad things to her, she could figure out a way again, how the mechanism <clears throat> is not clear, but she could do it. She could turn the volume down, sometimes almost turn the volume off. On the other hand, if she liked what they were being said, she had written a poem, and the poem uh, was, was being uh, uh, given positive review by whatever authority figure uh, I believe that she had created in her imagination uh, that now had crossed some kind of a line where it wasn't just experienced as imaginary but as real, uh, she turned the voices up. Um, she stopped being hospitalized when we, worked, when we worked together. I think this was the second year. I worked with her for about 10 years. Um, but th this is the second year. And when I came back to the clinic in, in late August, early September, and I asked where she was, why wasn't she uh, scheduled, uh, she had been hospitalized. and She had been put into the hospital. And when I called the hospital, she was released, and I saw her the following week. I said, what happened? She said to me, you were gone. I got lonely, so I turned the voices up. Um, no one is going to convince me that this is some neurological trick. It may involve a neurological skill or certainly an abnormality, and I use that in a statistical sense, because most of us can't turn on and off voices that way or make them louder or softer. But this was meaningful, purposeful behavior. And in all of the people I've worked with, and there were many, many, many over the years, uh, I worked at Flushing Hospital. Uh, and the reason for that, I worked with so many individuals who had been diagnosed as schizophrenic, uh, based upon most of the time, just, no, not most of the time, a good number of time, a hallucinatory activity, uh, an imaginary discussion in which the line between imagination and actual experience had obliterated. I never used those words exactly before. I've got to write that down. And if I ever really do a review the book that uh, I'm going to quote in a moment that I have re written recently, uh, put that in. It's an act of imagination in which the capacity to distinguish between imaginary and, and real is somehow lost. In any event, um, it's that will be one of the main reasons somebody is diagnosed as schizophrenic. The other main reason has to do with what are called delusions. And a delusion is a belief considered to be false by somebody okay, who then says, 
this, this is a symptom of a disease, a mental disease called schizophrenia, because no matter how often authority tells them that they're wrong, um, that, uh, and, and, and whatever evidence is shown them that the facts of the belief are wrong, an individual claims his wife is cheating on him, uh, and she does all that she can to convince him, uh, uh, including uh, you know, providing evidence that might compel another individual to believe that she's not cheating on him. He still says, you're cheating on me. Um, uh, as long as that belief is held that way, and it's a troublesome belief, it causes problems for uh, the individual it's about or social behavior, uh, it's going to be called a delusion. And a delusion is one of the main categories of symptoms of a, um, of a, uh, uh, a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And this is a very serious illness. Once it becomes a part of the identity of an individual, and what really upsets me over the years is when somebody uses, doesn't say, I have schizophrenia, I instead says, I am a schizophrenic. And I write in my book, one of the saddest expressions of a ruined identity are the words, I am a schizophrenic. To have one's total identity conflated with a fictitious disease that a person believes is incurable is tantamount to tragedy. To believe that you are damaged as a human being. Now, many people have ruined identities in that they believe that they're morally deficient. Children who are raised being told constantly, you're a bad person. Or a person who commits some kind of an act that they can't find forgiveness for, whether it's a real crime or whether it's an imaginary act, because children imagine all kinds of things uh, that they have done, uh, and they think of themselves as a bad person. What makes this so damaging is that the moral judgment of badness, of damage, of deficit, is hidden in a, a pseudo-medical term. So instead of saying, I am a, a bad person, I'm no good, I have no real value, person says, I'm schizophrenic. It hides the actual notion of, 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 of moral ruin. And on top of that, once the individual believes that this is some uh, uh, incurable medical condition, uh, they have to be on these drugs. They're almost forced to be on their drugs, uh, which work by shutting down various functions in the brain, which may or may not be helpful for the individual, but over long periods of time, uh, cause all kinds of brain injury and brain problems that then add another dimension to a quality of a ruined life. Right? So that we have a real serious issue here. Schizophrenia, because, especially because of delusions, uh, is 
listed in one of the psych, as one of the psychoses. And the definition of a psychosis, of a psychotic condition, is that the individual has no longer in contact with reality. And what I want to do is spend some time discussing the notion of reality. What is real? Right? What is imaginary? Philosophers, scientists, and, 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 and others have spent their lives trying to come up with a definition of reality. And it's extremely difficult to come up with one. But there is a common sense notion that operates in calling somebody psychotic, that they have a belief in something that's not real, or that they hear a voice that no one else can hear, but that they experience as real. And that is that these uh, uh, experiences or these beliefs um, are, are a deviation from normal experiences of reality. Uh, I look at my computer and I assume it's there and I can touch it and feel it and listen to it and hear it, see it. And if someone else comes into the room and they agree that the computer is there and we agree as to what we call its color, red and gray and, and white, uh, and, and put all these sense impressions together, we're directly in contact with reality. That the reality is immediately given to us. And this is not so. This is not true. Whatever my computer is, I only know it through my experiences of the computer. And an experience of the world is something very complex and requires a tremendous amount of processing, psychological and physiological processing. Okay? So if I press my finger, as I am doing right now, on the edge of my computer, uh, I can say how I feel it, but the feeling doesn't take place in my finger, it takes place in my brain. Right? What we know to be a nerve impulse runs up through the finger into the brain where it is processed. And one of the interesting things about the processing is that none of us have any idea how the processing takes place. Now, we can see what part of the brain is processing if we hook somebody up to a scan or a machine of some kind that reads what the neurological activity is going on in the brain and where it's going on. But the actual experience is not found in the brain. And the brain can't experience itself doing the processing. If, for example, <clears throat> I were to have uh, somebody scan my brain and find out I have a tumor or something growing on my brain, they'll open up my skull and then they'll probe around uh, and stimulate various areas to see what will happen if they remove that piece of brain, what functioning will I lose? But I won't feel the probe touching my brain. 
the brain can't seal itself. Can't feel itself. So that it's invisible. The processing is outside of our experience. That allows us to experience. I experience the room I'm looking at, but how that is constructed, how the the experience is created, the perceptual experience is invisible. And oftentimes when somebody is uh, treated for a tumor, doctors will not remove it because the devastation to the way in which the person might experience the rest of the world for the rest of their life uh, would be worse than if the tumor were allowed to grow or treat it in another way and ultimately even kill them. So, experience of the world is not given directly to us. And in my book, I have some other examples. Uh, One of the pleasant memories I have, and I'll start to cry about it, because one of the things that uh, once my kids were out of college, my wife and I did, was start to see the larger world we live in. We had not really done a lot of traveling. And we went with some dear friends, one of whom has departed at this point, and we uh, took a long car ride through the Pacific Northwest. And we were in Glacier National Park in Montana, one of the most beautiful of places, and in a lodge, a national lodge. And I walk outside one morning, and it's a beautiful, crystal clear day, no humidity, uh, cool temperatures, the sun is shining, the sky is blue, blue, blue. And I see a group of people looking at the mountain behind the, to the side of the lodge, and they're looking up and pointing. <clears throat> and I walk over and I say to them, what is it that you're pointing at? And they say, there's a whole family of grizzly bears on the mountain. And I look and I look and I look and I can't see the grizzly bears. Now, my experience is I'm seeing the whole mountain, but I can't see the grizzly bears. Why? Well, an answer can be constructed by what happens when I look at a mountain that is perhaps a half a mile, the bears were there a half a mile away on a mountain of view that's maybe two, three square miles the light from that mountain has to enter my pupil, which is the size, two pupils, the size of a pinhead, and then are processed on the retina of the eye, which sends it to the rest of the brain, to create the full experience of seeing the mountain. And this experience then uh, clearly can't be of the entire mountain. I feel as if I am seeing the entire mountain. But apparently what happens is that the mountain is being sampled. I'm seeing pieces. My eye is shifting all over the mountain, and the light is brought, and the brain now creates a picture. It constructs a picture of the mountain. It's not really the mountain. Because most of that mountain can't be seen at any given moment, any given second. As I look, suddenly it comes into focus. Somebody in the group points out, if I go up about halfway to the mountain, 
you'll see a group of trees. And these little tiny trees are there. Now, of course, those trees were pine trees, and they were probably 100 feet tall. Um, otherwise, <laughs> I might not have seen them at all. And there, to the right, I see a group of five or six or seven large bears <clears throat> uh, uh, gamboling around and walking around the mountain. Okay? So perceptually, we don't, are not given reality. We are given information in which we construct the reality. When it comes to beliefs, delusions, what's real in our beliefs? Most people <clears throat> believe in God. Unless in the United States you claim you see God or hear God, and then you're going to be called schizophrenic. It always seemed to me an unfair kind of arrogance for people who claim to believe in God than to say that people who are, uh, are people are schizophrenic if they claim that God speaks to them. So there is a kind of a doubt even there where there's a claim of belief. But I won't get into whether God doesn't exist or not. That's not important. But there are 2,000 religions on this planet. <clears throat> and most of them have different versions of God. Uh, most of them claim to have different spiritual sources that have told them about God. And for thousands of years, people in these different religions are going to, going to kill each other. Uh, the, the, the fight over the Protestant and Catholic domination of Europe led to uh, a 30 years war and a 100 years war and the destruction of 50% of the European population. Uh, a war goes on now uh, between the Sunni and the Shia. Muslim groups in which terrible polls are taken about which version of the story. Now, if, if there are 2,000 different versions, at best, one of them is true. We don't know which one is true. But then the other 1,999 are delusions. They're false beliefs. However, to be called delusional, your false belief has to be your own peculiar, particular creation of the false belief, of the belief that's believed to be uh, untrue. It has to be something you yourself made up that varies from the other 1,999 potentially false beliefs, which in religious terms, by the way, are not called schizophrenia. It's called sin or apostasy. But in our secular society, the priests of uh, psychotherapy and psychiatry now call these delusions. A delusion isn't a delusion if it's a false belief you learned in school. How's that? Eh? My entire upbringing my education, my, my, my love of Western movies, particularly when I was younger, right, <clears throat> showed, uh, created the belief that the uh, American Indians, uh, and the only reason they're called Indians, uh, was because of the false belief that when Columbus got here, he was in India, he had literally sailed around to the other side of the world, and so they're called Indians, these were savages. These were people of no great value. 
and that the people who settled the West were the good guys, the good Christians who brought uh, and settled and tamed the land. And instead of, of uh, a group of nomadic tribes, uh, which had great value and purpose in how they lived their lives, I learned later, but had I said that as a child, it would have been considered delusional because we all accepted that they were savages. They were primitive. Right? All would have been delusional except for the fact that these beliefs, these constructed beliefs, these created stories were held by millions of people. By, by, and, and countless numbers of people. So I reject the idea that reality is immediately given and that most of the stories we live by would be delusional, except for the fact that, except for the fact that they're believed by large numbers of people. Sigmund Freud was called crazy, and I want to talk about crazy and sane or insane in a, in a moment, just for a little uh, finish up the show, uh, when he said that infants, children have sexual desires, um, and a few years later, he was no longer crazy, he was now a genius. We use these words to describe people and clearly they are judgmental words, crazy meaning defective in some way, and, and, and genius meaning uh, so smart that we can't understand how smart he is. Uh, and, and, and therefore, uh, I believe that uh, were I the only person to have ever used the term schizophrenia, I might have been called delusional, especially if I've said this is a disease, a mental disease. And yet, these false beliefs are held by my entire profession and are used to convince people that they are inherently and incurably defective and, and live, therefore, uh, as best they can with a, a uh, damaged persona whose lives can be taken from them uh, by the doctor with a right of the pen and the gavel of a judge and put away in a mental hospital and kept there until they agree that they're diseased. Because to define, it's the same way uh, as in religion. If you don't believe in God, your religion tells you you're a sinner. If you don't believe in mental illness, you're mentally ill. Now, I wanted to finish up... Um, with the word uh, sanity and sane, uh, I have a reason for doing this, but um, I don't like the word psychosis or mental illness, but the word crazy is an interesting word. And it really is the more colloquial term that we use for people who we think are mentally ill, but in the vernacular we'll say not that they're psychotic or mentally ill or delusional, they're crazy. Their beliefs are crazy, or their personas are crazy. When I examine the word crazy, uh, two things come to my mind that uh, uh, I'm happy with as a definition. 
One is, I don't like what they're saying. I find it troubling. So when somebody says uh, that um, they're going to throw themselves out of a window because uh, the voice of the devil is telling them they're no good and they should do this, it's troublesome. Uh, The second aspect of it is not only it's troublesome, but I don't know how it comes about. It's hard to explain. Why do they believe such a belief? How does it come about? Once I called them crazy, like all terms related to mental illness or these judgments, it has two functions. One, it says it judges as bad, and it creates no need for an explanation. I don't know why, but it doesn't matter. If they believe that the devil is telling them to throw themselves out a window, they're crazy. And why are they telling the voice telling? Because they're crazy. It is this circular reasoning, and I spend much time in my book, Psychotherapy and the Stories We Live By, uh, explaining how this works in so many areas. We use a word that is basically a judgment and forget that you can judge something or describe something, but not at the same time. Explanations come from this detailed description, from an understanding of the phenomena. When you judge something and calling someone or some idea crazy, there's nothing longer to be explained. It's crazy. It's crazy because it's crazy. So the judgment acts as a two-for-one. It explains but really doesn't, it seems to explain, and it makes a judgment, and that closes the issue. Um, Crazy ideas, crazy societies, behavior that I would work with therapeutically that I call crazy, is crazy till I can understand its source, understand how it came about understand the purpose it has for the individual believing it. In almost all the cases I've worked with and I recognize, that's really worthy of a kind of, of a discussion that we can call therapeutic. That in my book I describe more as having an educational impact than a curative impact because there's nothing to cure. In all of these Somebody is doing something to relieve some terrible emotional pain that causes more pain than it relieves. All right? I'm not going to give hundreds of examples. I don't think I have to at this point. Uh, I see the world I'm now living in as crazy. I see the destructive things that are happening in my view, in my value judgment, politically and socially, as a result of how people see the, the pande- uh, are functioning with this pandemic, which I believe is factually so. Right? And I'll say somebody is crazy when they deny it's actually happening. Right? But the fact that they're denying it's happening has a purpose for them and often a source of authority telling them it's not happening. And if you don't see something happening, it's very hard to believe it is happening if an authoritative source, somebody you respect, says it's not happening. And so I use the word crazy 
But recognize that when I say the word crazy, that the world is crazy or an individual is crazy or I'm crazy because I have called myself crazy over the years at one point or another any number of times, it's because something is going on that is destructive or uncomfortable or I don't want to see happen, but I can't explain it. It stops being crazy when I can come up with an explanation of the behavior of another or of my own actions and thoughts. Now, with that regard, I'm going to close my show. Uh, I have a colleague, uh, uh, and let me, I, I'm sitting here doing this, and I can't remember anybody's name. Uh, Eric, what's Eric's last name? Let me, let me do this here. Uh, Eric Maisel. He's a colleague of mine uh, who uh, belongs to the International Society of Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry, ISEPP. And if you go to isepp.org, uh, and if you are of a mind, uh, look at it, see what it might offer you, and join it. It's a wonderful organization of like-minded critics of certain aspects. We don't all criticize the mental health industry, which is what I call and others call the collective of those people who do what's called psychotherapy, uh, but end up starting this process by diagnosing people as mentally ill. Like some are social workers, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, and there are all of these groups that, that uh, are not true believers in one way or another. Anyway, he, has, uh, he creates programs to help parents deal with certain stresses and difficulties. And he asked if I might mention one of them, which in the context of what's going on in our society, in which the terrible stress being put on families, especially when the kids are home from school and people are locked together for long periods of time, uh, the fears and the anxieties of this pandemic. I mean, I'm going to be nervous for the next week, uh, and I hope nervous is all, because I went out for the first time in a long time shopping. Uh, normally, I have my shopping done by somebody uh, uh, who goes, and I, I have a, an app, uh, and I go on the app, and I order from this company that does the shopping for me and, and uh, brings it to the house and drops it in front of the door. And today I decided the number of cases is fairly small. Uh, I'll wash my hands. I'll put on my gloves. I'll put on a mask. The supermarket I went to now is organized so that you can only go one way down a row so people aren't meeting each other face up. Uh, and you stay six feet away, and today I walked back and forth, and I think that sometimes maybe I was no more than three or four feet when I passed somebody. So I'm going to be nervous about this for a while. Uh, hopefully I didn't pick something up. Uh, I don't think I did. But in any event, this, this uh, uh, <clears throat> creating tremendous stress on people, and they're being told they have mental health issues, and many of them are going to end up, I did a show a couple of weeks ago uh, where I discussed the fact that um, this was an article, a show based on an article in the Times. By a very respected uh, therapist, works at uh, Columbia, 
Okay, that's as prestigious a place as you could work, uh, suggesting that people under stress can take more of their uh, medication. Now, they're not medication, they're drugs. And I spent an hour deconstructing and being very critical of the article and what it recommends because I don't share the same belief system. But anyway, uh, Maisel has now created certain programs and one of them is to help parents and kids and deal with the stress of what is going on in a cra- world that's crazy uh, so that they can remain sane. And, of course, the word sane, in my value judgment, is, means that uh, they're seeing the world in a way that won't get them into as much trouble than if they see it through what I call crazy. That is some uh, uh, way of functioning that may be more harmful than good. So I'm going to give you the uh, 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 URL, the address, where you could find this uh, particular program. Um, And uh, you could look through it. And if you decide that it might be helpful, that is nice. Uh, www.raisingsanekids.com. Raising, R-A-I-S-I-N-G, S-A-N-E-K-I-D-S, as one word, unbroken word, dot com. www.raisingsanekids.com. And I think that is going to do it for today. Let me take this off and see. Where am I? Where's my show? I don't know what I did with it. Now, let's see. Okay. Good. I'm back. All right. No one has called in. I don't think anybody is going to call in. I'm going to turn on the television now. My wife will yell at me, why are you watching that? All it's going to do is upset you and get you nervous and aggravated. Too bad it's not Thursday. Well, I mean, yesterday was the first live golf game I could watch uh, that I was uh, interested in. Uh, And uh, I'll decide by 5.30, is today a good time for cocktail hour or should I take a pass on it? In any event, I'm going to end my show Whoever hears this now or later, oh, did you hear that thunder? Uh, I'm going to end my episode and stay safe, stay sane.